the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Now they're gunning for Hunter. Yeah, the special counsel has decided to indict Hunter Biden on three gun charges. It's going back several years to when he lied about being a drug addict or when he applied for his gun license. Uh, it's all very boring and probably means nothing, and it's probably just a distraction from the stuff that counts, you know, which is uh, selling influence with the vice president of the United States to uh, foreign countries, some of whom don't like the United States. And just in case you were wondering how the media will be covering the serious stuff involving Hunter and his old man, here's a compilation courtesy of Newsbusters of some of your uh, your favorite people in the national media talking about Kevin McCarthy opening the impeachment inquiry yesterday. Impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Speaker McCarthy opens an investigation claiming Biden was involved in his son Hunter's foreign business dealings despite no evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. To Washington now, the decision by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden without a House vote in the absence of evidence of impeachable offenses. It's an unprecedented move. But even the Republicans who are pushing for this the most acknowledge they are still searching for hard evidence of any wrongdoing by President Biden. The question is a Republican claim that Biden's son Hunter's business dealings have enriched the Biden family, and Republicans have also made some unproven allegations that the president himself was involved in all of this. Now, the White House denies and denounces these claims. The three Republican-led committees tasked with leading the inquiry have already been probing the dealings of the president's son Hunter with foreign businesses and whether the president might have benefited, but so far have not provided a conclusive link. The investigation is based on a Republican belief that Hunter Biden traded on his then-Vice President father's name to win lucrative business deals around the world. But they have yet to show any proof that Joe Biden used his influence to aid his son's work or personally benefited from it. Did you notice a theme there? I think it's um, no hard evidence. It's not what I got out of it, but, you know, call me crazy, but I think uh, that's what you have inquiries for, to find hard evidence. Of course, the media are operating on the request by the Biden administration not to take the Republicans' accusations about the big guy very seriously. In our second half hour, we're going to talk to our media ethics expert, Jeff McCall, about that and other stuff. And coming up after the break, lots of people dressed in 49ers gear showed up at the Steelers game on Sunday. We're going to talk about how close Pittsburgh might be to uh, making people visit here from San Francisco feel right at home. Stick around. If you're a uh, Steelers fan, you might have found the number of people dressed in 49ers gear at the Steelers game on Sunday kind of disturbing. I asked here after the game, actually, on I think it was Monday, if anybody had noticed an increase in poop on the streets since they've been here. I was only half kidding. Uh, Pittsburgh isn't there yet, I don't think, but how far are we from becoming San Francisco? J.D. Haltigan of jdhaltigan.com. He's he's a uh, P, has a Ph.D. in developmental psychology and is an independent scientist. 
And uh, he wrote at J.D. Uh, he works at uh, jdhaldigan.com. And uh, he wrote about this the other day. He joins us now. J.D., thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, John, for having me and for um, promoting the article and, and discussing this issue, which I feel is a very urgent one for the city. Yeah, they can find your stuff at jdhaldigan.com. That's uh, J-D-H-L-H-A-L-T-I-G-A-N.com. So uh, you wrote, this is what you wrote, quote, um, the cultural psyche of contemporary Pittsburgh appears to me barely tethered to any strands of its industrial past. Why is that a problem? Well, what's happened, John, is that it's gone from its blue-collar roots, uh, working class, to a more sort of techno-based, um, you know, white-collar society. And while on the one hand that's good from a financial perspective in the sense that it's, it's rescued the city from a dying industry, on the other hand it's brought with it a sort of suite of um, a personality type that is very progressive, uh, radical progressive in mindset, and really kind of ignores um, what it's like for a working class person. And you're seeing that resulted in, over the last couple of decades, uh, and most recently currently, with policy and ideology that's associated with sort of this um, ivory tower academic way of life that is disconnected from how things are operating for most of the population. And that can revolve um, or can be associated with things like crime, uh, mental health, um, and much more. And you're seeing that sort of now play out in the conditions of the city, especially urban and downtown in the downtown core. Uh, with the drug addiction, the homelessness, um, the crime policies that have been um, completely soft-pedaled um, uh, on account of restorative justice tactics. All these sorts of things and policies come from sort of this academic milieu that is sort of disconnected from how life really is. Yeah, I referred to San Francisco. Uh, you called it in your piece uh, quasi-Seattle. I guess, I don't know, is that just as bad or worse? Well, there's two pieces on my Substack which you referenced with jdhaltigan.com. The first one I wrote some time ago, and that's the one that you kind of referenced to begin with. And then recently, um, in in the wake of the 49ers Steelers home opener, um, I wrote "Radical Progressive Capture of Pittsburgh Social Policy," which really links the two cities of San Francisco and Pittsburgh. Um, and I did this because obviously the game featured the 49ers and the Steelers. But really what's happening, and, and Joe Rocky, who is a current uh, nominee, the Republican nominee for the uh, county executive position, has, has described it as if we become like San Francisco in a laboratory of progressive ideas, uh, we're going to sort of spiral into a city like San Francisco, which is completely out of control right now. And in that piece, um, which is for paid subscribers currently, I lay out all the ways in which San Francisco has become completely a total dystopia downtown. Elon Musk has talked about it, and many of the other corporations, they're leaving San Francisco. I've talked about the conditions. And so linking those with the current decline and what we're seeing in downtown Pittsburgh with the homelessness on the streets, the addiction that's untreated, the crime is off the rails. Um, So that's the piece that is more current and which draws the two cities together. But in response to your question, Seattle's just the same. So they're very similar in makeup. They're very similar in their white-collar bases now, and it's, it's all the same in terms of what's happening with the policy that's leaving the working-class person um, totally with, with not much to work with. 
The scary thing, I think, is that what you are writing about as something that disturbs you and disturbs me, to, to be honest with you, and probably disturbs a lot of people, uh, other people will look at it and go, yeah, so what's the problem? We like this. We're progressives. We uh, we don't want to be a steel town anymore. That was, that's that's the old days. We don't make steel here anymore. Leave us alone. Right, and, and that's fine. The problem is, is that <clears throat> it's one thing to... Um, not be a steel town anymore. It's another to be a complete dystopia where you have untreated mental illness on the streets, crime running off the rails. And the ones that typically say that are the ones that aren't impacted. They're living in Swickley. They're living in um, places that are not impacted by the crises that their policies are engendering. And you see that in San Francisco too, with the, the ones who are constantly promoting the policy that doesn't impact them living in Berkeley in other places. So they're insulated from the policies that create the conditions they don't have to live in. And that's part of the problem. And so they're sort of disconnected from how their policies are really impacting the working class person, the normal average person who's walking and working downtown, who's going to ball games downtown, who's having to navigate homeless encampments downtown, and who's also having to navigate in the case of San Francisco, as you referenced at the beginning, um, just putrid conditions in the downtown base. Yeah, um, I, I grew up here. I know you have a long time uh, connection with the city, um, and I and I am old enough to remember when it was definitely a steel town and a working man's town. But and the politicians had to cater to those people in order to uh, uh, get their votes. Although you know, the Democrats have had control of this area for like eighty years, but still. There was a there was an audience or a, or a um, constituency that they could target. How would a Democrat get elected uh, by trying to appeal to the people who really don't exist anymore? Well, that's that's really a good question, and you saw that recently in some of the gender uh, affirmation sanctuary city type of legislation that was recently passed. Yeah, um, we talked I do about believe- that yesterday here. Yeah. Right. I do believe there is sort of because the things have gone so far off the rails with the Democrats and the radical progressive party and the legislation they're introducing is so off the rails. Um, there, there is a possibility that, a, that a sort of a, a middle of the road or left of center Democrat who's not totally progressive uh, or so radically progressive to to uh, lobby to get some voters to who will see the world as the way it really is in downtown. What's more important, in my view, given the sort of Democrat, the democratic um, composition of politics here in the city is for uh, candidates like Joe Rocky to really continue to press hard and to, to really drill down and to communicate to the voting public, whether they're right or left, that if this stuff is left to continue, the city will end up like San Francisco and to outline the ways in which this will happen, and, and the ideology behind that. What I think is the problem is that the, the, the most most people really don't understand why this stuff is happening, and when they see it, it's because of the policies that the Democrats are putting in place and the radical progressives, particularly. They're more they'll, they'll be more inclined, perhaps, to shift their vote as an accord of that. And you're seeing that a little bit now in the general politics too in the nation. Mm-hmm. Well, the scary thing again to me is that the people in San Francisco who are responsible for making San Francisco look like San Francisco keep getting reelected. They could have if they had the election tomorrow 
every Democrat in the city of San Francisco um, and every per- would be would would uh, be reelected by the people who are walking around looking at what you just described every day, and they keep electing the same people. And I'm sorry, but I don't see any reason for the people in in this area, Western PA, Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, wherever you want to, whatever you want to call it. They're not going to change. They're not going to vote for Republicans. Someone could uh, run uh, tomorrow and say that if I'm elected, everybody will be required to wear their underwear on the outside. And if it were a Democrat, it'd win by 80 percent, would get 80 percent of the vote. That, so how do you fight that? Well, I think what you're saying is that one of the things that's really sort of tipped the scales here, especially in San Francisco and in California more broadly, is the gender stuff. And that's when parents have started fighting back. Um, you see a number of those situations happening now in California with parents really saying enough is enough. Um, you also saw recently saw Newsom sort of backtrack on his COVID policies because he, re- he realized that uh, the lockdowns and the draconian measures in California were, were really not felt or, or received well in retrospect. And so I think what's happening is if you push the policy too far, particularly in the, in the realm of disrupting families, you will have pushback. And that's where we are now, especially recently with that, with the gender affirming sanctuary city legislation, the radical progressive um, gender ideology in the schools. And once people can really understand how dangerous that is, that can tip the scales. But in order to do that, you have to communicate effectively to the people why this stuff is so dangerous. And, and then you can potentially have change. But few people are doing that. And that's one thing I'm trying to do on my Substack. And it's one, one reason I'm really um, sort of uh, heavy and uh, very bullish on Joe Rocky. I think he gets it right. And I think it's very important that he wins that November uh, county executive election. The woman that he's running against is a socialist. And um, I told someone with uh, connected with the Republican Party, I said, if I were um, in charge of advertising for the Republicans for this election, I would I would put uh, giant billboards around Allegheny County that just said, do you want a socialist with a question mark seriously? And then put a picture of the two candidates up there and, you know, pick one. Do you want to, do you really, really want a socialist? Because that word is thrown around, J.D., but I don't know that how many people who are actually going to show up to vote who actually understand why that's a problem or care if it's a problem. Well, and that's exactly what I outlined in the latest piece that I wrote on my Substack is why that's a problem. It's a problem because the socialist ideology is a completely liberatory one in which they live in this world of a utopia where if you leave everything to the individual to live their life as a work of art, there will be no problems. And that's exactly what you had with London Breed in San Francisco. That's exactly what you have with Kathy Hochul in New York. And that's exactly what you had with Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. And if you look closely at those cities, they're all chaotic. They all have huge problems. And that's what you're going to get if, if um, the socialist who's running against um, Rocky is, is, is put in place. You're going to get even worse conditions downtown, more crime, um, more accusations that run off the rails of transphobia and racism. It will just come. And so it's, it's crucial to understand the ideology that, that she brings with her. 
Yeah, um, and you, you we're talking to J.D. Haldigan. That's J-D-H-A-L-T-I-G-A-N.com. Some really good stuff at his website. He has a Ph.D. in developmental psychology. He's an independent scientist uh, and an independent writer. Um, so, uh, J.D., you also write, uh, quote, this is in the piece uh, that you wrote a little before, uh, a few days ago. It's not as recent as the one that's out there today, but... Uh, the quote is, the replacement of manual labor with abstract, largely language-based work essentially replaces the behavioral traits that track with masculinity with those that track with femininity. So is Pittsburgh becoming feminized? Yes, it is. It's totally becoming feminized. That's and that's happen- Yes, it is very scary. And that's something that's happening with all these white-collar cities you lose, and, and something that others have noted, not just myself, but the feminization of the academy, that being academia, uh, the feminization of politics is leading to a breakdown of the traits that, that masculinity typically is associated with, which includes structure, order, uh, rule-based thinking, and you're seeing the consequences of that play out all across um, the nation, really. And you're also seeing that in sort of an appeal in, in the feminized culture of appeals to empathy, we're going to let people um, get off on softer charges of crime. We're going to let uh, drug users, um, you know, use um, their their drugs rather than hold them accountable to rehabilitate themselves. So the idea of restorative justice or harm reduction, all of that stuff is associated with sort of feminized ways of thinking that appeal to empathy. And it's the same with the gender stuff. And, and it really the problem is is that when you appeal to empathy, you cannot see at a higher level of numeracy and how this stuff is very dangerous. And that's particularly the case with the, with the gender stuff. A lot of the people who push this stuff are, and frankly, they're, they're women. And, they, and I think they do it out of a place of, of good nature, but they don't see that it's based on faulty science. It's going to result in tragic harm for many. And frankly, it's, it's very dangerous. Um, and so having said that, the, the idea is that, like you said earlier, we're not going to go back to a steel town per se, but we've got to really find a way to inject sort of the more masculine way of thinking into to the politics. Otherwise, it's going to spiral out of control. And that's what I'm really worried about. Well, I've been saying for a while I can't understand how any man could vote for a Democrat. Um, so, uh, you know, that, I, that I see it going that way. i got about 30 seconds left. If we, uh, we end up with a socialist at Allegheny County Executive and a George Soros DA to go along with the already socialist uh, woman we have in Congress, is the party over, game over for this area for a long time? I think the game is, is very close to over, and I would be very fearful if that's the case. Um, and that's why I'm pushing back so strongly, you know, loving this city for what it is. I was downtown the other day, beautiful skyline, but we have to protect it. And we have to do that by calling attention to the dangerous stuff that, that could be uh, injected into the local politics if, in fact, other things that you described happen. Hey, uh, J.D., I appreciate uh, you coming on. Hope to have you on again. Thanks so much, John, and I appreciate it. hope all your listeners are having a great day. Okay, thank you. It's J.D. Haltigan, H-A-L-T-I-G-A-N dot com. Check him out. I'll be right back. Well, just in case they needed any encouragement, uh, 
A couple of days ago, the White House sent a letter to news executives at the major networks telling them that, you know, they need to turn up the heat on Republicans now that Kevin McCarthy has opened an impeachment inquiry. Jeff McCall is a professor of communications at DePaul University and a media critic for The Hill. I don't like to bother him too much because he's so good about coming on the show, but sometimes something will jump out at me and I say, i got to get Jeff's take on this. So, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show again. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. This is a topic well worth discussing. Yeah, so... Uh, I guess I don't even know where to begin, but what would be the proper response from a network executive who gets a letter from any government official uh, suggesting what they cover and how they cover it? Well, on one level, they should just ignore it. But on another level, I think they should push back and just to say, don't bother us. We know what we're doing and you have no right to come on and try to tell us how to do our business. And, you know, that White House memo comes off as very sanctimonious and heavy-handed, and and it really demonstrates that the White House has a tin ear to the role of a supposedly independent press. And the other thing that struck me as as weird is, when you get right down to it, the establishment media really have already been running interference for the White House and scrutinizing uh, the Republican uh, investigation into the Biden corruption. So if anything, uh, if I were the White House, I would be quiet and not call attention to this because they've already got pretty good cover from the mainstream media anyway. And I don't know why they'd want to call attention, you know, to their heavy handedness um, by going forward with this. And another thing that struck me when I saw this memo was I wonder who in the White House is advising the powers that be on these matters, because they clearly don't know what they're talking about. uh, And they're clearly misinterpreting, you know, the role of the press and that what the government's role in terms of interacting the press, with the press should be. And, and by the way, let me just say parenthetically, too, there's nothing in the First Amendment that stops the government or the White House or Biden or the press secretary any, or anybody else from sending these memos and having their role and their right to speak, too. It's just whether or not it is appropriate to be kind of applying this kind of pressure and trying to leverage the news industry. And that's why I think the news industry itself uh, should be more vocal in reacting uh, to this uh, directive. And I must say, I've been disappointed, although not necessarily surprised, by the lack of media outrage and pushback. Because, you know, if you go on to the various websites of the of the establishment media, many of them are reporting that this happened. But you don't see any commentary. I mean, generally speaking, it has been very muted, any pushback, or holding the White House accountable or scolding them back to say, don't bother us and leave us alone. So I think that's that's a weird kind of situation, too, is that the establishment media have kind of like taken it uh, on face value rather than to say, stay out of our business. You know what? Uh, I, the fact that you asked who's, who, who would be in charge of or who would be responsible for sending the here's, – here's the memo in case you haven't uh, – seen it or heard it yet, it's time for the media to ramp up its scrutiny of House Republicans for opening an impeachment inquiry based on lies. Uh, and so that's um, that's what came from the White House. But, Jeff, you know what it says to me is that they it, it, it speaks not very well of the media, the fact that the White House would send this knowing that it would be pretty well received. 
that that would that, that wouldn't like it, it's it should to me it, the reaction from the any news executive no matter what side of the uh political issue they're on the response should be a quick uh, response that says hey how about this how about we decide what we cover it and how uh, we cover it and you leave us alone that's that's that should be the response oh you're exactly right and another interesting part of this memo is it talks about the uh, impeachment process in, that is built on lies. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a second here. Um, if you think this whole process uh, in, you know, amongst the House Republicans uh, with Jim Comer and Jim Jordan and those guys is based on lies, well, the White House have, has every opportunity to correct any information that's, uh, that's wrong out there and to provide their own evidence that this information that Comer's collecting is based on lies. And, you know, there's, a, there's an old saw that says, truth is a great conversation stopper. And I'm thinking if the White House wants to stop this conversation about impeachment, all they have to do is provide absolute truth and evidence that they're right and that the, the House Republicans are wrong, and this whole impeachment thing just disappears. But apparently they don't have that information, or they can't, or they're unwilling to engage in that kind of a debate. And so that's why we go on here. And they're expecting then the White House, uh, in its kind of sanctimonious way, is expecting, you know, the, the establishment media to protect them on it. And I think that's why they sent this memo. It's like, hey, you know, we're starting to be exposed here. Our ratings are, you know, our polling is in the tank here. And we expect the media to boost us by criticizing the Republicans. And I'm thinking if they've got counter evidence, they should be bringing it and not expecting the media to be covering up. And the the uh, memo actually included this. It should, quote, set off alarm bells for news organizations. This is coming from the White House. It's I don't know if maybe it happens all the time. And this is this one just was made public. CNN actually uh, broke the story that this this uh, letter came out. Um, and as someone at uh, PJ Media pointed out today, instead of CNN showing some kind of outrage over it, they just basically did what the, what the letter suggested. They started talking, as you said, about ah, there's no real evidence. Uh, it's a bunch of lies. Uh, they never, they don't have anything on Joe. So again, it's just to me, the White House knew what their reaction was going to be. Well, they've they've had protection from the establishment media for a long time, and that goes way back, you know, to the beginning of Biden's campaign, and you know, for for the White House in 2020, uh, and uh, honestly, throughout. Uh, the Biden administration, the media has been providing very uh, favorable coverage of Biden and talking about, you know, what a great job he's done getting legislation passed. And he's just old Joe's really interested in the middle class and his economy is going great, uh, all contrary to kind of what the evidence seems to suggest out there. So, I mean, I, I think they're they're It's funny to think the White House is not sufficiently satisfied with the great coverage they've had from the media. And they want even more coverage. And a part of that is, I'm sure, heading into the 2024 election season. But part of it is they don't know when they're well off. Uh, and that this information came out, uh, you know, from CNN, I'm a little surprised that. Uh, and, and by the way, back to your point, it really does happen all the time that government officials and their press relations people, they do lobby the news organizations. They contact producers and editors all the time to spin stuff or to challenge things. I mean, this happens, you know, from congressional offices. This happens from, 
you know, major government agencies all the time because they all have press secretaries as well. But it's usually done in a more subtle behind the scenes way where a press secretary for a senator or maybe the Department of Labor or whatever, they contact the reporter on the phone and say, hey, you know, we were disappointed with this coverage or, hey, here's a, a news release that's going to come out. We're hoping you'll make sure to notice it and contact us if you got questions. And it's not done in such a blatant, uh, you know, across the board fashion as this memo that went out to all the media basically saying, hey, protect our backsides for us because Republicans are all liars, uh, even though they don't provide any evidence to suggest that the information that Comer has provided is inaccurate. And I mean, I think that's interesting. The Republicans have some information. And I must say, uh, I don't think the Republicans have the the deal sealed here yet in terms of going ahead with impeachment. And I don't think they have all the evidence to connect the dots. And I think it would behoove Comer and Jordan and these guys to get more and maybe get that before they do any more public proclamations. But certainly the White House has never come out specifically and denied what Comer's got or to say that it's Russian disinformation or whatever. Okay, so I think until they do that, uh, the White House ought to just keep a low profile and let the chips where they go. And if they've got information to counter the Republican narrative on uh, these, you know, these broad corruptions, as we've talked about before, they ought to be bringing it. And if they haven't, there's a point where it's like, okay, you don't have it either then. Uh, they need to put up or shut up or, or maybe shut up until they're ready to put up. And, and Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so I, I played a, a compilation of sound bites, um, courtesy of Newsbusters at the top of the show, which was uh, every network, basically, except Fox, I guess, uh, and Newsmax. Um, every major network uh, some with a, a sound bite from someone saying, uh, even though there nobody, the Republicans have no hard evidence that anything was was um, uh, that Joe Biden did anything illegal. Every single uh, soundbite included. There's no hard evidence. So they've got. It's like they got the memo, and it's like this letter that was sent out was the memo. You know, right? Hey, right. Hey, Mike. Hold on. Hey, Mike. Uh, Mike's in the control room. Can you run that soundbite that we ran at the beginning of the show? If you can't, don't worry about it. Okay, he said it'd be a problem. That's okay. Uh, but you get the drift anyway, and I don't. I don't think yeah. I have to play it for you, Jeff. You know what? what uh, no, you, you don't need to uh, because I've seen this reporting now yeah. over several weeks. Because I mean, the whole the whole narrative is no hard evidence, no hard evidence. And I'm thinking, okay, well, it might not be conclusive yet, but there is some evidence, and we we surely know that Joe Biden did talk to his son, that Joe Biden interacted with Hunter's business partners, his quote-unquote business partners. We know that, and we also know that Joe Biden, the president, has lied about that for a long time. And I'm thinking, well, there's hard evidence there, that Joe Biden has repeatedly denied that he ever discussed business with Hunter. He's repeatedly denied that he had any interactions with Hunter's business partners. And we all know... uh, that, you know, uh, completely that that is false. Well, we've all he, seen the, the videos and heard him yeah. say it. He's right there. It's and, right there for everybody and, to see. Not to mention the video of him talking about getting the uh, Ukrainian uh, prosecutor fired. So, I mean, that that's hard evidence to start with. So, I mean, it's not like there's no evidence. That's part of the evidence. Now, I think, as I said before, there's probably a need for more. We need closure to connect the dots. But to say there's no evidence 
is ridiculous. And it does sound like in those cases that these media outlets are just running interference for the White House. And that's why the Republicans can't afford to let any loose strings hang out there if they're going to go forward with impeachment or have more hearings. They've got to clear things up more specifically than they've done. Uh, and and th- they should also learn from the Democrats' January 6th hearings that ran on and on and on because the, the, the Democrats had these primetime hearings about you know, Trump insurrection and stuff like that. And those never came to any serious conclusion either. And so, I mean, I think when politicians want to have hearings and they want to get out there, they've got to have their ducks in a row before they start having hearings. And I think the Republicans didn't learn enough from the Democrats' misguided January 6th hearings that didn't lead to anything either. Yeah, I want to switch to something else. We're talking to Jeff McCall uh, professor of communications at DePaul University. You can also find his stuff at The Hill. Um, he's a media critic there. Uh, I don't know what you think of Bill Maher. I don't. I, don't, I think he's only. Well, he's, I found him to be a little bit more tolerant lately because he's been pushing back on the really insane liberal stuff. But um, this is something. It's just. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, a philosophical thing that bothers me. He put out a long tweet or a long statement today saying that he's coming back to work even though there are no um, writers. And he says, I'm, I'm coming back to work. Uh, there are other people who's, who've been out of work too long, and I have to, you know, I, I want to make sure that they don't go without pay for so long, blah, blah, blah. But what, what struck me was that he said there, that he will no longer do a monologue uh, because there are no writers. Now, I've always liked his monologues, even the ones that I don't agree with at all, just for the, the the writing. The writing was good and the content was good and it was delivered almost like a stand-up comedian, which he once was. But when I read that today, I thought, he's not writing those monologues. So basically he's reading a teleprompter to me. So I don't know, <laughs> should I have lost some respect for him when I find out that he, he, he needs a writer to do a monologue and that that's stuff that I've been watching for years, it's not, his, it's not coming from his brain? <laughs> Well, I've never been particularly a fan of his because I always thought he came off as a little too self-righteous and too smug. Uh, and in, in fact, though, in, in recent months when he has tried to call out, you know, the most uh, zany of, you know, progressive ideas and stuff like that, I, you know, that's been interesting. And it's kind of been worth noting kind of his metamorphosis on this. But, yeah, it, it does make me wonder, like, is he was he really behind these uh, union people, these writers on strike, or was he uh, just really at some point wanting to get back in the limelight and he's going to move forward? And the, the thought that he can't do a monologue because he has no writers kind of leaves me a little bit baffled because I'm thinking, hey, you know, write your own for a change. Um, I mean, that's, See, I don't, you don't, you, just you, can, full- you can, you can certainly have your show and prepare your own material if you want to. Yeah. Just as a philosophical thing, I did TV for a million years and I fought as hard as I could for the whole entire time I did it to only r- read on a teleprompter or, or say on the air something that, if it was written, I wrote it. If, if it's, especially if it's an opinion. I am not going to read someone else's opinion and have it come out of my mouth when it, I got it from his brain. I don't know. Am I the only person who thinks that that's not a, a good way to go? Yeah. No, no I, I, think th- I think that is a good way to go. Uh, and I think one of the questions always is, you know, for these entertainers and all the stand-up comedians and the late-night comics and whatever, you know, th- the question always is, 
Are they the creations of a bunch of writers behind the scenes, or are they brains of the operation and they meet and give guidance to the writers to kind of uh, reflect back to them what they've already said or their perspectives or whatever? So, I mean, I'm not opposed necessarily to having writers, but I think the key is whether or not these people are just figureheads or whether they're really the brains and people are just helping them with the execution of the messages and the commentaries they want to have. And I'm not sure where that is with Marr necessarily. And the fact that he won't do a monologue now kind of makes you, makes you suggest, uh, like you're pointing out there, that maybe he's just been reading what other people have written for a long time. So he's an interesting character. You know, he's uh, important kind of in the pop culture world. Uh, I don't think people should ever take too much credence in what he says. I don't know that he's particularly an intellectual giant. Um, and he's, well, and he's, more, he's more of an entertainer, and I think we should look at him as an entertainer and not necessarily as a cultural guide for our nation. Well, I appreciate you coming on, uh, as usual. Jeff, I'm out of time, but he's, he's not a, nobody who reads other people's opinions is an intellectual giant in my mind. But you are, Jeff, and I always <laughs> appreciate having you on. I hope to have you on again. I look forward to it. Thanks, John, as always. All right, that's Jeff McCall. We'll be right back. So here's the uh, statement from Bill Maher that I was talking to uh, Jeff about before the break. Real time is coming back. Unfortunately, sans writers or writing, it has been five months and it's time to bring people back to work. The writers have important issues that I sympathize with and hope they are addressed to their satisfaction, but they are not the only people with issues, problems, and concerns. Despite some assistance from me, much of the staff is struggling mightily. We all were hopeful this would come to an end after Labor Day, but that day has come and gone, and there still seems to be nothing happening. And this is what bothers me. I love my writers. I am one of them, but I'm not prepared to lose an entire year and see so many below-the-line people suffer so much. I will honor the spirit of the strike by not doing a monologue, comma, desk piece, comma, new rules or editorial. I don't know what all those things refer to, but then he says, the written pieces that I am so proud of on real time, and I'll say it up front to the audience. The show I will be doing without my writers will not be as good as our normal show, full stop. This is what I don't get. This is a guy who sits in there and comes across as a guy who's really sharp and has these great lines that he throws out, and um, and he's a comedian, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm... I, I know. I'm not going to say I'm, I'm. I wonder. I know that there are a lot of people in television like that. But as I said in the last segment, it, it's always bothered me. I knew. I knew some guys who worked in sports that um, would walk in and be handed a script by a producer and then go on the air and read it almost every day. Um, and I never understood that. I. I just. I don't. I just think that when you're on TV. And you're looking into the camera, and my feeling has always been you're talking to one person at a time. So that person who's watching you, if you're especially if you're expressing an opinion, that person thinks that it's your opinion. You wrote it, and you're reading it. You're 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 saying it to them. So I I lost a lot of uh, respect. Not that I had a ton to begin with, but I lost a lot of respect for Bill Maher. And I, you know I sat next to a guy named Bill Curry for a long time. He wrote spectacularly well-written commentaries. He wrote them all. Nobody handed him a script. He was a superstar, and so I have not a lot of respect for Bill Maher anymore after finding that out. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.